Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Craig, what are you doing in the women's bathroom? I had to catch you before you go back into the exam room. Here, I've got all the answers for you. Um, but isn't that cheating? <laughs> yes, totally. Now, you'll also need this bag of clean urine for your one o'clock drug test. Oh, urine? Whose is that? Robert Downey Jr. They test him all the time anyway, so we know it's good. Now, here's a doctored baseball for the game this afternoon. Here are the cheat codes for Grand Theft Auto V on PlayStation 3. Let's see, what else have I got for you? Oh, here's three great jokes I heard a young comic tell in a club. Use them, make them yours. And this is a magic bean. You plant it in the ground and it will turn into a graphic calculator that will allow you to manipulate specifics to make yourself look better at work. Greg, this is so wrong. I don't want to cheat at everything. Come on, the system itself is toxic. It's stacked against us. Cheating is moral. Disgusting personal values are a way of seeking justice. Do you promise? I promise. Well, I have no reason to doubt you. Today on the show, a hard look at cheating. And now he refuses to return the gold medal he won as a woman, Colin McEnroe. I don't even want to talk about that. And I'm so glad we're not doing the entire show from the women's room anyway. So, yeah, we're going to talk about cheating today. And we're going to talk about it a lot of different ways. Because as I said before, it's like a big botanical garden. There are a lot of different flowering species of cheating. Last month, the world was treated to the startling image from uh, eastern India where friends and family were shown scaling the walls of a building inside which students were taking tests. Now, this is, uh, it was in, I think, the state of Bihar. More than 1.4 million 10th graders taking these tests. And these are the kinds of, kind of zero-sum tests in a way that determine whether or not you're going to be allowed to continue your education. So the people scaling the walls, and there were dozens of these people, you probably saw the photo or the video, were passing in cheat sheets. I'm guessing it didn't feel that much like cheating to the wall climbers, um, because these tests are basically a crude bureaucratic tool with devastating consequences. And that system seems, seems inherently cynical and unfair, so you know who wouldn't cheat? On the other hand, if only X percent of these students can move forward in the system, then cheating probably knocks out some of the more deserving, non-cheating test takers. So that got me thinking about cheating and how we view it. You don't have to go to India to see parallels. Last July, the New Yorker ran a remarkable story about a star teacher at a middle school in Atlanta that was, after a terrible past, finally turning around. The school's actually getting a lot better, but not fast enough. And the students were facing one of those tests, uh, no child left behind kind of tests, which would determine whether, in fact, this school, it's called was called Parks Middle School, would be classified as a school in need of improvement for the sixth year in a row. That means so a certain percent had to do uh, had to pass the the math test and the language arts test. Otherwise, the state would shut down the school. And so this very dedicated teacher. Um, he, he put on gloves to present oil, prevent oil from his hands from leaving, leaving a residue on the plastic. And he somehow or other got the cellophane open on the answers. And, and he, he cheated. He cheated uh, in a couple of different ways. Uh, there were other teachers who worked with him. And reading the article, 
it's, you know, the guy seemed kind of heroic. It was hard not to take his side. The system seemed so immoral and so indifferent to human casualties. The cheating seemed like a risky, heroic act, which made me also wonder how much of our attitude about cheating is, is a result of, con of context. So uh, we're going to talk to some experts in this today, uh, and uh, we're going to start with uh, two. David Callahan uh, is uh, joining us from the studio in KCRW in Santa Monica. He's an author, lecturer, and co-founder of the Think Tank Demos. He has uh, written extensively about American values, most especially in the book The Cheating Culture, Why More Americans Are Doing Wrong to Get Ahead. We're also joined by Dan Ariely, professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. Uh, his TED Talks have been watched over 7.8 million. I think we should say 12 billion just in the spirit of, of cheating, uh, but we'll say 7.8 million times. He's the author of uh, the New York Times bestsellers, Predictably Irrational and the Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Um, so, um, David Callahan, I'm going to start with you. And um, do we have sort of a working definition of cheating? I mean, I, I would assume not all crime is cheating, not all lying is cheating. So what's cheating? Well, it's an interesting concept because you're right. There's some cheating that that is perfectly legal and some cheating, obviously, that's not legal. I think of it as breaking the rules to get ahead. So f f to cheat, there has to be a set of rules that that everybody kind of knows exists. Um, exactly. Now, within that framework, um, you know, in your book, well, I, let's sort of talk about individual cheating versus um, institutional cheating and, and whether that's the same. So, um, you know, we could take an individual Olympic speed skater who blood dopes. Uh, that's cheating. It's against the rules of the Olympics. The IOC, which runs the Olympics, uh, has been caught numerous times uh, engaging in very cynical vote-selling practices that result in the picking of various host cities. Uh, and that seems like cheating, too. Is, uh, are those two acts of cheating the same, or is there something different about this huge, corrosive institutional cheating? I view them as the same, but it, there is something more disturbing when you have an entire institution that is colluding together to break the rules. Um, and, and what is it that's more disturbing? What's disturbing is that instead of it being a, a rogue individual actor who's looking for an unfair advantage, you have a, an institution that is that is conspiring together to to get that unfair advantage. Everybody's in on it. They're all uh, part of the part of the effort to to cheat, um, and actually, a, a good example is in, with the uh, uh, cycling teams who American cycling teams who went to Europe during the 1990s, and you know the story has been well told in the context of Lance Armstrong. They got to Europe and they realized that uh, all the other cyclists were engaged in blood doping, and that's just the way it was. And the the teams together. Uh, decided that they needed to do that as well. And, you know, that case where everybody's in on it is uh, it, it's a different dynamic. It is, although I think that it's a dynamic that obtains an awful lot of the time. I mean, right now people are, it's almost April 15th, we know what's happening, people are doing their taxes. And when, it's, it's there in your book. I think, I, I think you cite a study that says 95% of people think that everybody else is cheating on their taxes. Um, so and that becomes the argument for, or an argument. We're going to ask Dan a little bit about what, what the real arguments are. But that becomes an argument for cheating on your taxes, right? Everybody's doing it. Well, I... I, I Absolutely. Nobody wants to be the chump who dots every I and crosses every T 
when everybody else is cheating. You don't want to be the saint in a, in a sea of sinners. And I, I think that that's a common rationalization that, you know, it's just the way it is. It's everybody else is cheating and that in order to compete on a level playing field, you need to cheat as well. So just to go back to that example of, of the cyclists, if everybody else is engaged in blood doping and, and you're not, then you're not, you know, even getting fairly to the starting line and competing on that, that even playing field. But uh, we're going to go to Dan uh, right after this, but I just want to sort of stop there and, and ask a question about that. So if you talk to those cyclists about blood doping, and, and if, in fact, they all embrace this notion that everybody's blood doping, and you, know, you have to be an idiot to try to compete without blood doping, um, uh, they're going to stop using the word cheating, right? Because cheating implies a deviation from the existing system. And so they're not even going to use, I assume they'll stop using that word at a certain point because that is the system. They're not deviating from anything. Well, exactly. Another great example, by the way, is the steroid use in Major League Baseball, where there was also the perception that everybody else was juicing up and that if you were going to compete with all these hulking gorillas who are on steroids, that you need to, to be on steroids, too. And that, you know, you sort of get the tipping dominoes where where you get past this point where it's just the perception that cheating is so commonplace that it's become the norm. It's, it's in effect part of the system. It's the de facto shadow rules that govern and that if you're not playing by those de facto rules, you're a fool. So, uh, Dan Ariely, it's absolutely time to get you and your research into this conversation, uh, and, and we're spot on with your research right now. But even before we go to that, one, one question that leaps to mind is, is there some kind of psychological profile of a cheater or a potential cheater that isn't simply everybody in the human race? Uh, I mean, one thing that you find in your research is that there are alpha cheaters, and then there's kind of everybody else, and, and that the, the everybody else group is doing this kind of low-level cheating, right? That's right. So so it's kind of uh, good maybe to uh, classify what we think about as cheating, right? The definition is not easy, so uh, we create simple experiments in which we tempt people to steal money from us. And I'll give you one one kind of mechanism. So imagine that you have a regular die, a six-sided die. And I say, look, why don't you roll the die, and I'll pay you based on what the die comes up on. If it comes on six, I'll give you six dollars, five, five, and so on. But you can choose to get paid based on the top side of the die or the bottom side of the die. Top or bottom, you decide, but don't tell me. So the study starts, and you pick top or bottom. You don't tell me. And then we roll the die, and it comes up with two on the top and five on the bottom. And then I say, okay, so what did you choose, top or bottom? Now, if you chose bottom, no problem. You say bottom, and you get $5. If you chose top, you have a dilemma. Do you say the truth, top, and get $2? Or do you kind of change your mind after the fact, say bottom, and, and get $5? And we get people to do this 20 times. Every time they think top or bottom, they roll and they see what happens. And when people do this 20 or 40 times, we, we find that people are incredibly lucky. Right? So uh, <laughs> people, people cheat a little bit. Uh, nobody cheats a lot, but most people cheat a little bit. So people get 14 or 15 times the, the correct amount from 20 when they should really get 10. Um, so that's the kind of cheating that, that we observe. And it's, uh, we, can, we can define it in a very clear way. You have a financial gain on one hand, you have honesty on the other hand, you have a tension between them, and the question is how people solve the tension, and people solve the tension by cheating just a little bit. Now, in terms of personality, uh, we have a few big cheaters. 
uh, people that we think of as psychopaths, right? Or people that have no morality, they just get the most money they can, but there are very, very few. We had uh, less than a dozen of those uh, from 40,000 people we tested in the U.S. Um, but, but we get lots of little cheaters, and of course their economic impact on my research budget is much larger, right? Together they steal lots of money uh, from me. And now you can say, okay, so what within that range of normal people who cheat a little bit, what get people to cheat more and to cheat less? Most of the changes are explained by things in the environment. For example, if people can rationalize more, if they see other people, all kinds of things like that. The only psychological profile we found so far that more creative people cheat more. <laughs> and, and the question is why? And what we find is that basically this kind of cheating, cheating on taxes, cheating on these the small amounts, is basically about we, we're trying to balance two goals. We're trying to look in the mirror and feel that we're good, honest, wonderful people. And at the same time, we try to benefit from cheating. Now, you could say, how can you do both? You either look at yourself in the mirror and think you're a good person, or you benefit from cheating. Well, it turns out as long as we cheat just a little bit, we could do both. And it's about weaving a tale, tell, telling a story. And if you are more creative, you could tell a better story. You could say, everybody else is doing it, I deserve it, and so on. Can I tell you one other study as an example? Sure, give us one more study. So... I own a vending machine, and one day I kind of uh, set up the vending machine to have on the outside the price of 75 cents, but the inside I set the price to be zero. So no matter how much you put in, how much money you put in, the machine thought that everything was extra and gave you back all your money plus the candy. And I had a big sign on the side that says, if something is wrong with the machine, please call this number. And this was my cell phone number. And question number one was, how many people called? And, and the answer is zero. Nobody called. <laughs> Question number two is, how many candies did people take? And the interesting thing was that the majority took either three or four. Nobody took five, right? Taking five would be stealing. Three or four, you can tell a story about why this is okay. You say to yourself, I remember a different vending machine that took my money and didn't give me a candy. It must be a, a relative of this one, and I'm just kind of evening my vending karma. <laughs> so, so basically what happened, it's about our ability to tell a story about why what we're doing is okay. And it's not about the law, and it's not about size of punishment, and it's not about uh, long-term thinking. It's about what do we feel comfortable with right now, and that creates our tendency to be dishonest. So David Callahan, you listen to Dan Ariely tell these stories, and there's so many interesting variables here, but one of them that jumps out to me is um, what, what the individual's specific code is. Now, I don't have too much of a moral code about vending machines one way or another, and I'd probably just fall somewhere within Dan's norm about that. And the same thing with, with dice experiments. But you, you, look at, you look at sort of things that we encounter in real life. So for me... I wouldn't feel too bad about fudging my taxes. I'm probably kind of like what Dan says. I'm probably not going to take the equivalent of five tax candies. But if I could get two or three <laughs> tax candies from the government, fine. I think I'd do it, and I, I wouldn't lose any sleep as long as I didn't think the IRS was coming for me. But as somebody who spent his life in journalism, and you, you, you talk about journalism in your book, you know, I mean, 
plagiarism, falsifying stuff. And the Boston Globe, as you know, had this this mess where two of their columnists at the same time, Patricia Smith and Mike Barnacle, I mean, within weeks of each other, as I recall, uh, got caught with that kind of thing, plagiarism and, and just completely making up stories that were represented as news that didn't have any actual sources. To me, I don't know whether it's the opprobrium I would receive from my peers or, or some internal code. That That's a much harder thing for me to do because I've got a code about it. I mean, what, what did you find about that? Well, absolutely. People are, are more willing to cheat in areas that are of low importance to them, you know, that, that it's not a really closely related to their personal code. But people also are more likely to cheat when they're uh, feeling angry at a system. Uh, a great, a great example is uh, employee expenses. You know, this is an area where many people uh, use their their company credit card for for things that are are, are not quite uh, allowable. You know, you go out to dinner with a friend, and yeah, you discussed a little bit of work. You know, so so you put it on the company Amex. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who. If if they believe wait, wait, deeply in the out. mission of if they deep, <laughs> if they believe deeply in the mission of their uh, of the company and they really feel part of the team, then you know they they would keep that sort of thing to a minimum or not do it at all. On the other hand, if if you just view your job as a paycheck and you're you don't feel like you're paid enough and you you don't like the people who are running the company, you think they're paid too much, uh, you're much more likely to. Uh, abuse that that company credit card. Dan, I think all those Midtown New York lunches where you and I were planning this show, those are totally legal, all right? Oh, we're, yeah, yeah. There's, we're, no, there's no question. And everybody else is doing it, too. Right, exactly. Well, what I want to ask a little bit, both of you, about, I mean, one of the other issues is punishment. Um, so, um, Dan, I'm going to start with you. What do we know? I mean, you're talking about a cost-benefit analysis or a risk-benefit analysis. And, and so far, what we've talked about is the ability to look oneself in the mirror. I don't want to think of myself as an evil, five-candy-stealing kind of person. Uh, and, but I also, the, 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 the devil on my other shoulder is sort of saying, on the other hand, there are certain things here to be taken. Uh, they can make my life better. So as long as I've got the, the seesaw kind of in the right position, I'm okay. But we haven't really talked about what will happen to me if I cheat. Uh, if I get caught, uh, you, these experiments that you've described, people don't get electroshock at the end of them if they take too many candies or if they lie about which side they thought the dice was going to be on, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so first of all, we have to uh, realize that uh, there are very few things that people do in life in general that show that we think about the long-term consequences, right? These are the same people that overeat and under-exercise and under-save and text and drive, right? There's no single human activity that we could say, oh, this is an ex amazing examples of long-term thinking. And then in the, in the kind of dishonesty realm in general, uh, there was a very interesting analysis of the death penalty. So some states have the death penalty and some don't. And you would say, well, you know, if, if people think long-term, states with death penalty should have no crime of the type that you could get the, the death penalty for. But the fact is that no observable difference. And you know, think about it. What what happens? Like you come you come home at, at work. You 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 really are you know furious with your significant other. You want to kill them, and then you say, oh yes, yes, yes. But we have the death penalty. Let's instead do something else. It it doesn't work like this. We don't think about the long term consequences of our actions. The one exception is that when the probability of being caught is about a hundred percent. So imagine think about something like texting and driving. People text and drive a lot, 
And then some states regulated that it's illegal. You know what happened to texting and driving? It actually became more dangerous. Mm -hmm. Why? Because now instead of texting and driving above the wheel, texting above the wheel, people started texting below the wheel, making it actually more dangerous. The frequency did not change, just the the danger of doing it uh, changed. So if every time you texted and drove, uh, somebody would give you 100% punishment, even if it was small, like $10 fine, very quickly you would stop doing it. But when things are probabilistic and in the long term, it doesn't seem to have a real, a real effect. And I've, I've talked to lots of big uh, criminals in the last few years. So, you know, we do these lab experiments, but we also talk to people who've done serious crimes. And in all cases, aside from one, these were stories of slippery slopes. These were stories of people doing one thing, not their best interest. It, it was to help somebody else, to help the company, to get over a hump just for now, to do what everybody else is doing because the team relies on us. And then things just deteriorated down and down and down until it became a terrible outcome. But, but this idea that people think carefully and compute and do this computation, it just doesn't have any uh, realization in reality. We've just had a, an ex-governor who's proven that by going to prison twice for uh, corruption, not having yep. learned that. Well, I, 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 David, I want to come back to you on this, specifically in the area of high finance, one of the areas that you've written a lot about in your book. But w- before we do that, we have a caller who I think is preferring not to give his or her name in <laughs> central Connecticut, uh, but it's just on point about cars and stuff like that. So, uh, caller, go ahead. You're on the air. <laughs> it's not always about gaining advantage. Sometimes it's to avoid future disadvantage. I had a traumatic brain injury and I got very disorganized with some of my paperwork and I had a few vehicles that I had sold years before that I did not return the plates. So I was being charged property tax for something that I didn't own and I wasn't aware of it. But when I went to register a new to me used vehicle, they would not allow me to register and pay sales tax on it because I owed property tax for something that I didn't own. So they're trying to collect money that I didn't really owe, but I couldn't prove it. And they have not collected property tax ever since because I wasn't going to drive around illegally. I registered out of state. However, plenty of doctors and lawyers do that to avoid property tax. So I guess it's not okay for me, but it's okay for them. All right. So, so this is a beautiful story yeah. of rationalization. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so there's the rationalization of how this is really getting something back mm-hmm. that this guy had before, and how it's really not his fault, and how everybody's doing it. Um, they're really fantastic stories. The, the most interesting one is when you ask young people about their illegal downloaded music. So, first of all, almost all young people have illegal download music on their computers. Uh, they know it's illegal. It has illegal in the title. And then they give you these amazing stories of how they're really helping the artist, and it's in the artist's advantage to have this, and it's really increasing, and the artists really want the music to be heard, and they're just not giving money to these awful music labels. Really uh, amazing. You, you listen to them, you think these are Robin Hoods of modern day. That they're not just um, you know, downloading illegal stuff. They're actually improving the lives of, of, of society as a whole. 
Um, now, da- David, I want to go back to this issue of punishment. All right. So because one of the things that we hear a lot and it's part of a national conversation right now is, you know, we look back to 2008. There are all these people doing all these things that redounded dismally uh, for the, the American public. Just, you know, horrible things happen. And a lot of these things were constructed uh, on Wall Street out of falsehoods. Uh, and But nobody ever seems to go to prison for this kind of stuff. Um, and and so. You know, Dan is telling us, well, the guys who do insider trading or the women who do insider trading or the, the people who construct these you know, complicated schemes uh, that often have terrible consequences for the average investor, they're not really thinking about getting caught and going to prison. So the idea that we would throw a bunch of them into prison as a deterrent uh, probably wouldn't work. What's your take on that? You spent a lot of time in the book looking at, at Wall Street and its equivalents. Well, first of all, I... Just in general, I do think that uh, would-be cheaters think about the consequences, and those consequences, likely consequences, sway their action. I would just say music downloading is a perfect example. Once the Recording Industry Association of America started suing college students uh, for downloading music, it it became a lot less common. By the way, my my experience with college students, it's about 100%, so I'm not sure how less common how less common it is. Um, and, and we've done lots of surveys of this. Mm. And, and also, you know, the kind of the real crooks, there is something about what people tell you after the fact. But if you actually look at it and you look historically at what happens um, to, to crime rate when punishment goes up. So what happens is punishment goes up. Crime rate goes down for a little bit of time because people are sensitive to the change. So, but then after a while, they go back to their previous uh, crime rate. I think this this idea that people think long term. Now, by the way, punishment. So you're saying deterrence. You don't think deterrence example. works. Sorry. You, you don't think you don't think deterrence works. Uh, well, I think deterrence can work on companies, for example, right? So you could say, here's a bank. Bank is set, setting regulations. So, for example, there's a new regulations against money laundering. Uh, they're suing some companies for back money laundering. Uh, banks get very upset about this, and they start investing money in creating technology that would not allow um, uh, so easily to, to do money laundering. But is it actually getting into the mindset of the criminals at the moment? I think very little crime is planned that much in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I would say, and I, it popped into my head reading David's book, too, was is that uh, there's, you know, I, I think a lot of what Dan is saying r- rings very true, you know, that the people habituate pretty quickly and, and, and go back to their old ways and, and that deterrence doesn't all work all that well. But one thing we've done here in this country about certain kinds of cheating is to at times have almost no penalty at all, particularly in that area, David, of high finance. Right. I, I'm thinking uh, in particular of, I mean, although some people have gone to prison for in, insider trading, I mean, we've got a case, the guy happens to live in Connecticut, it's SAC, it's Steve Cohen. So through a pervasive culture of insider trading, he amassed about $10 billion. The government made him pay, I think, a $1.8 billion fine. He wound up keeping about $9 billion. His investors are happy because they made a lot of money while he was doing all that insider trading. So there's like a 10 to 20 percent tax on on cheating and crime, which if, if you get caught, which that's not a deterrent. That's an incentive. I mean, if you can make a lot of money and only have to pay a little bit of it back and never go to prison, that's that's not a deterrent at all. Well, that's a business expense. I th- I think that the that it, it, 
what we've seen around taxes and around finance is a general lack of strong enforcement over the past couple decades that's just beginning to change. I mean, if you go and look at you know, the capacity of the Securities and Exchange Commission to really police publicly held companies, it's, it's pathetic. I mean, it's, you know, when I was looking at all these earnings fraud uh, cases, you know, WorldCom, en- Enron, and a whole bunch of others in the early 2000s, these are cases where companies inflated their earnings in order to drive up their stock. You know, I, I, I looked at, well, why would a company be, be, feel so cavalier that it could, could do that? And yes, for sure, in some cases, there were slippery slopes, as certainly in, the, in, in WorldCom and how decisions were made. Uh, people, people got into cheating uh, one step at a time. But they also knew that the chances that the SEC would ever come after them were very low because the SEC uh, publicly acknowledged that it it only looked at about 10% uh, of these uh, uh, earnings reports that were filed with it every quarter. So in fact, it didn't really know what what the vast majority of companies were doing with their numbers and whether or not there was there was a monkey business there. And you know, you can look at the same thing in terms of what happened with the mortgage-backed securities and, and the lax regulation, the lack of capacity of government regulators. And that hasn't happened by accident. That has been orchestrated over the past 30 years because of attacks on government and anti-regulatory uh, efforts, often financed by uh, lobbying, a, a lobbying push by industry. I mean, that the rules have been uh, that the watchdogs have been put to sleep very purposefully in the area of finance. And the same is true in many ways, I would add, around taxes. If you right. look at the capacity of the IRS to actually enforce the tax laws, it's gone down significantly over the past few decades. They don't want anyone to know that right now. Don't say that. So anyway, we have to take a really quick break here. I want to thank Dan Ariely for joining us. Be the 8 billionth person to watch him on TED and check out the book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. David Callahan will be back with more. We're going to go cross-cultural in the next segment, talk about whether Americans look at cheating the same way everybody else does. Wow, this show that was just flying by here. Uh, we want to thank Josh Nalea. This is part of Josh Nalea's Week of American Moral Decline. Tomorrow, we will re- be re-airing a show that Josh produced for us in December, uh, a show about lying, uh, kind of, you know. It's like soup and sandwich, right? Uh, so uh, cheating today, lying tomorrow. Uh, the reason we're doing that tomorrow is that tomorrow night I'll be at the Watkinson School uh, with David Edelstein, America's greatest living film critic. Tickets are still available for that. Contact Watkinson School or go to watkinson.org. It starts at 7. There might be a little bit of food beforehand. Tickets are cheap, and they, they actually support the Mark Twain House and Hartford Stage and Billings Forge. We'd love to have you. It's going to be a great conversation about movies and about, so, you know, I don't know, what, what makes movie critics tick too all right so we're talking to david callahan right now Uh, his book is the cheating culture why more americans are doing wrong to get ahead Uh, we're also 
uh, adding to this conversation. Michael Smithy, president of Smithy Associates, which pro- focuses on researching and addressing critical issues in international education. He's uh, served the president as president of the International Center at Syracuse University, the author of Applying Intercultural Concepts to Academic Integrity. So let me begin. Um, I'm going to tell, uh, uh, there's a story that kind of got me launched on this topic. I was talking to a friend of mine who lived uh, in Germany for a while, and there was a woman that he was very, he thought he was going to marry this woman, uh, and so they were very close, and she had to take one of those tests, one of those big tests about whether you go forward or not, um, and she told him to meet her uh, in the bathroom of this building during the break and bring her certain answers or things that, that she needed, and he had this very, you know, very right or wrong kind of, he said, I don't, that's cheating, I can't possibly do that, that's cheating. And and they had this kind of moment where she sort of thought, well, isn't that so American of you? What what this test is is this very blunt, you know, uncaring instrument that determines success or failure for people. But you've invested it with all kinds of moral qualities it doesn't really have. And he was thinking, this is so European of you. You have this very cynical uh, set of, and jaded set of reactions to, uh, uh, to, to what, what's clearly a, a right or wrong question. So I guess the first question I have for you, Michael Smithy, is as you hear that story, um, is it just very specific to that particular couple? Or are there strong cultural differences uh, about what's cheating and what's not cheating? I believe there are strong cultural differences. Um, because I spent 30 years uh, working at uh, a university uh, and working with international students, thousands of international students, the first thing I would have to say is that uh, not everybody cheats and no culture condones cheating. So with those two uh, principles in mind, do some people cheat? Yeah, of course. Um, But it doesn't happen often in the sense of uh, students coming to the U.S. Uh, Smart students rarely cheat. They usually get on with their topic and, and do it. But there are some uh, issues uh, of culture that uh, play a large role in uh, people uh, cheating either abroad or even here. Um, uh, some of those might just, you know, might include the fact that uh, there are some social uh, relation issues, um, social obligations uh, with friends or with family or with your cohort that you are um, uh, around, your age cohort, for example. Um, there are certain things that um, that lend themselves to mm, providing a student with a rationale, say, um, for, for cheating, uh, bullying, uh, family pressure to succeed, group pressure, fear of failure, all of those. I mean, some of those, uh, of course, in the U.S. Uh, you find. Uh, and the U.S. does have a culture, and, of course, uh, there are people who fall prey to those issues. So, um, uh, David Callahan, I'm going to switch it over to you. Um, one of the arguments you make in your book is that America has a kind of growing culture of cheating. On the other hand, I think you'd still say that um, w- when you listen to that story of the perhaps naive-sounding young American saying that's cheating, that's wrong, that 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 does sort of fit into this almost kind of platonic attitude we have in America, that we do, do know the difference between right and wrong and cheating is bad. I do think Americans are idealistic and egalitarian in many ways. We, many of us believe, you know, strongly that we live in a meritocracy, that the good guys, you know, do finish first, that, you know, there should be a level playing field, 
that how far you get should be determined by how much talent you have, not who, who your parents were or how, how well connected you were. I mean, these egalitarian ideals are very deep in America, but I would say that they're at risk, and there's a tremendous amount of cynicism these days as to whether the rules are fair and whether the social contract is working. And if you don't think the rules are fair, uh, you're more likely to make up your own rules. And I would con- you know, say that in other societies, uh, that cynicism runs far deeper uh, than, it, than it does here, that it, in other societies, uh, people have never believed that the social contract is, is fair or just, you know, highly corrupt or hierarchical or or uh, classist societies are, are not places where you can have a lot of faith in the, in the notion of a, of a level playing field. Um, and if you come from one of those societies, um, then you know you you may have no no belief that there's that that you should play by the rules uh, just as a matter of, of of being a good person. That that just may seem naive to you. So, um, Michael Smithy. Um, you know, you said that no culture condones cheating. On the other hand, there are cultures where people feel so hugely disadvantaged by their lot that they might be open to certain things. I think if I were to go to a professor at Syracuse University or a teacher in the, in the Syracuse public school system and say, you know, I really need an A in this course, would 100 bucks make a difference to you? Uh, the, the response would be disastrous. But my sense is that there are some cultures where the teachers are so poorly paid or just because things are just so awful that, <laughs> that, that maybe I could have a conversation like that. Am I wrong? Well, you know, I don't think that there is uh, uh, a culture that uh, necessarily is founded on cheating. Uh, I think cultures are founded on other concepts. Um, some cultures are uh, egalitarian, as David said, and other cultures you have uh, a, a more uh, a social con- you have a social contract that's collective, collectivism, um, uh, having rules that relate to who's the oldest person, uh, uh, how you begin to understand who you sort of have to please in your own culture as opposed to here, and you have to please people who are older than you are, people not only in your um, family, but in your society, but in uh, among your uh, classmates, who's the oldest classmate. And and sometimes that, that leads to stress, uh, especially if you're a very smart student. Some smart students get bullied into uh, into cheating, yes. But, I, you know, I just, I just can't handle the idea that uh, some cultures are have endemic cheating, uh, that is uh, part of um, uh, part of their society. Uh, some cultures are very strong negotiators. Yes, I think there's a kind of a difference between cheating and negotiation. Um, you know, if you go into a rug shop and, and a guy uh, knows that he bought his rugs for twenty dollars, but he tries to sell you to him for a hundred, is that cheating or is that negotiating? Uh, caveat emptor: Let the buyer beware. I mean, in the U.S., we have that, uh, but it, it works all around the world. Uh, how do you know you're getting the best price? So what does cheating become in that regard? Um, on the other hand, uh, we have certain things like we might want to call collusion versus clarification. Uh, we have situations, in fact, I've come up with situations uh, in, in the classroom where um, the professor says, okay, uh, you will not give or receive help on this uh, examination, although it's a take-home and you have to do it um, at home 
and you have to write a paper at home. You cannot give or receive help. But, you know, a student who says, well, you know, I don't understand the question, and the, the faculty member might have said earlier, well, okay, uh, come and um, uh, ask me about it. That's embarrassing to a student to ask a professor such a thing. It makes him look stupid, and it might result in a lower grade. So he goes to his friend. And in that particular culture, having a friend is what you do. You go to a friend, somebody a little bit smarter, says, I don't understand some of the words in the question. And the friend knows in his culture that it's, uh, you know, you have to help the person who's the, lead, who's the weakest. And so you do that. And you explain it to him. And then the professor says, well, that's cheating. Um, or is it clarification? Mm-hmm. So there are, says it's collusion. Yeah, there are a lot yeah. of a lot of cultural differences um, that that would explain this. You know what? Uh, because I've mismanaged the clock so horribly, we have to take a break right now. Anyway, we're going to take a break when we come back. But I just want to say we're talking about cheating. Uh, I want to make sure you know the phone lines are open here in the afternoon. We're live. If you have questions or comments, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. We also have the yo-yo ma of Twitter, Greg Hill, in the house. I say this because he's going to be off the next three days so then if you if you want to tweet at us at wnpr colin today's the day to do it you're in the hands of a master so please tweet us your comments there wnpr colin we'll be back with more cheating after this plagiarizer plagiarizer your cigarette flick just started a brush fire originality is rare enough but don't come to open mics if you're scared to bust your own words throw on some skinny jeans and jerk instead of sinking your teeth into someone else's hard work you plagiarizer plagiarizer you got them fooled but i know you're a liar plagiarizer plagiarizer your cigarette flick just started a brush all right, Kion Wolf is off today. She usually does the thank yous. I got to do the thank yous. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is there on the board for us today. Greg Hill, as I said, is our tweet master, the yo yo ma of Twitter. Josh Nalea produced this show as part of his ongoing series, uh, Josh Nalea's Decline and Fall of the Spine and Soul of America. I just made that title up. And uh, Katie Tolarski, the big kid, the executive producer is on the phone. We've got an all-star team in here uh, today. This is great. And we're talking uh, about cheating. Uh, Still with us is David Callahan, his book, which I hold in my hand, The Cheating Culture, Why Americans Are Doing Wrong to Get Ahead. So um, one thing that we haven't said yet, David, that's one of the real cornerstones of your book, is this notion that um, as as American life becomes uh, uh, more and more of a system of winners and losers uh, and more and more of a zero-sum game in which um, it, I, I may prevail, but very probably at the expense of you, that this seems to push us in the direction of more cheating. Elaborate on that. Well, I do think you can construct a society where incentives either encourage cheating or discourage it. And, and I'd say over the past few decades, the incentives have increasingly become stacked in favor of cheating. Start with the rewards for becoming a winner. If you become a winner today compared to, say, 30 years ago, in almost any field, you know whether it's on Wall Street or in sports, you get paid so much more than ever before. I looked at the Major League Baseball players and how their salaries skyrocketed uh, you know, from maybe a million dollars a year for top players to $20 million a year for top players. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the steroid epidemic swept baseball during that same time. I don't think it's a coincidence that we've seen more cheating on Wall Street as the, as the salaries for, for CEOs who drive their stock higher has gone up or as the paydays 
uh, for uh, around mortgage-backed securities uh, soared. I mean, there are huge incentives to cheat uh, when the rewards are that big. It just makes sense that if the carrots are larger, you'll cut more corners to grasp those carrots. Meanwhile, though, the sticks have been hitting harder. It's 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 tougher these days to just coast into the middle class and have to have a secure life. Uh, you know, we uh, people are more insecure. Jobs are less secure. Um, pensions are less secure. In a variety of ways, the middle class has has had a tough time, uh, and and more have have felt themselves taking on more risk and. and that creates a lot of incentives for people to cheat just to keep their heads above water. And you'll see lots of stories of, of people who, who cut corners at work to hit the numbers, to, to make sure that they weren't the people who were laid off uh, and, and things like that. And certainly you see that in, in tax evasion by the middle class as well. A lot of people who are who are feeling under the gun. I'm not saying that any of that is a is an excuse, uh, a legitimate excuse. But I do think that the structures ha- have become, and the incentives have become, uh, ones that favor cheating. Throw in the additional fact that the watchdogs have been sleeping, and in many cases have been put to sleep. And it's no surprise that we've seen the rise of this cheating culture. Well, I think also we, we do have a little bit of a tendency to think of cheating as this very highly individualistic act, that the individual cheats kind of in, 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 if not a moral vacuum, an atmosphere of neutrality. And that's so often not the case. It's sort of why John Sayles' uh, movie about the 1919 Black Sox scandal is so great, because it kind of just sort of looks like it looks at who all the stakeholders are. And you were just talking about the juicing era. You know, I mean, there was Mark McGuire... But then there was ESPN, which had created this incredible um, highlight film culture where those dingers, you know, those home runs that would go sailing out of the park, they were like a really big thing on SportsCenter. So, I mean, they became monetizable. The owners were making, as you say, a lot more money and probably not asking very many questions about how Sosa and McGuire and people like that were getting so big and strong. They, they had no incentive to ask those questions. So, and, and up and down the line, I mean, everybody was kind of participating in one certain in one way or another. But the only person we really talk about is the guy sitting on the toilet injecting himself with something and going out and hitting a home run. That's right. And I would add one more thing, which is during the same period over the past few decades where we've seen a rise of cheating to get ahead financially or academically or professionally, we've actually seen a decline in a lot of other kinds of morally uh, questionable behavior. I mean, just look at the social trends of the past three decades. Crime has fallen to some of its uh, lowest levels uh, ever recorded. Uh, Drunk driving deaths are down. Teen pregnancy is down. Drug use among uh, teenagers is down. Uh, There's all sorts of ways in which Americans have, have come to behave more responsibly when it, around their social behavior, even as they've become more willing to cut corners when it comes to their financial or academic advancement. And I think that reflects the very narrow conversation we've had about moral values in this country for 30 years, where moral values were equated with you know, your, your behavior around sexuality or around family issues or around drugs and alcohol, and very little conversation about morality when it came, comes to getting ahead in life. Um, you know, we're running out of time here, but I do want to quickly pause, at least touch upon for a moment the thing that I was talking about at the beginning of the show. One of the, th- I mean, the, the phrase no child left behind, it sounds so egalitarian, right? It sounds like 
exactly what you would want. A system that refuses to reward somebody else's performance at the expense of somebody else's failure. Um, but then as we saw the reality of how it played out, it played out that there were these schools that would just be closed and a lot of people would be you know, disadvantaged by this in, in ways. And, and sometimes the people in the schools were thinking, no, 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 I'm really working hard. I'm really doing a good job. We're slowly turning this thing around. Don't close us. And at a certain point, you kind of could predict that if these tests were going to be the bellwether of whether a school stays open or closed uh, and, and about the, the conferring of other kinds of approval or disapproval, that that there was going to be cheating. I mean, it, was it in your mind kind of inevitable that at a certain point faculty and school administrators were going to start messing with the tests or, as they say on the wire, juking the stats uh, in order to, to – to, to make the system work for them. For sure. And I joke that no child left behind should be called no teacher left honest because the incentives are high to, to manipulate that system. And this is a great example of people rationalizing their cheating because they felt like the bar was raised for student achievement, but they didn't have the resources or uh, the students that they were dealing with just couldn't uh, perform at that level, and yet they were being penalized for things essentially beyond their control. People will, will readily rationalize cheating in that, in that situation. But, but the broader point here is that we, we have been living in a time of where, where metrics are everywhere. It's the metrification of society. We measure more and more things with more and more numbers. And, and the, the, when you do that, when you have numbers that determine people's uh, success in life uh, or success professionally, uh, they're, 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 you create incentives to, to fudge the numbers. We saw have seen this not just with the teacher cheating scandals, but also with the crime statistic and reporting scandals that we've seen in many police departments. You know, as these ComStat uh, systems have come online in in you know the last decade or two, where where uh, there's all these metrics around uh, crime and crime reporting, uh, a, a lot of police uh, have been involved in, in fudging those numbers. Uh, and I could go on with other examples. Well, you know, instead of doing that, you've got th 30 seconds left, and take me literally at that, David Callahan. If you could prescribe one pill to make things a little bit better, is there anything, is there anything that strikes you as something that would be helpful? Your 30 seconds begin now. I think less economic inequality and more security for everyone would be a pretty important uh, antidote to this uh, cheating culture. If the if those carrots weren't so big and juicy for the winners, and if the sticks weren't hitting harder for everybody else, um, you know, I I think that we would have less cheating in this society. And if you could wake up those watchdogs, that could make a difference as well. Uh, but I can't not say that I think that family matters as well and you know parents need to talk to their kids about these issues all right and, we got to go your you know, ethics you're, do start at home you're cheating now you're going over 30 seconds uh, david callahan so great to talk to you the book is great too the cheating culture why more americans are doing wrong to get ahead we'll be back tomorrow with lying what a wonderful week you're having with us we'll tell for you